a Podcast One production. G'day, Adam Spencer here with another edition of The Big Questions. I emceed the Singularity U event in Sydney. If you haven't heard of Singularity U, it's the concept of people thinking on the topic of our exponentially growing technologies. What impact will the move towards artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. have on the world in which we live? Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician scientist, an entrepreneur, an innovator, an inventor who trained at Stanford and Harvard. And for Singularity University, he heads up their medicine track. He asks, what's the future of medicine going to look like in this exponentially growing technological world? Well, Dr. Daniel Kraft, what will medicine look like in the future? So, Daniel Kraft, thank you so much for joining us on The Big Questions. I've seen enough of you presenting to know that you know, in this sort of 35 minutes or so we've got, we barely have enough time to skim the surface uh, of the trillions of things you could talk about. So let's not worry if we don't cover absolutely everything. Let's just blow people's minds for the next 35 minutes or so in your specialty, which is medicine and exponential medicine. So first of all, medicine, what's your medical background or passion? So I'm a traditionally trained sort of physician scientist. Uh, after Brown University, I went to Stanford for medical school, spent some extra time doing stem cell and immunology research, uh, then did my residency training, or specialty training at Mass General Hospital in internal medicine and pediatrics. It was a special combined four-year program, so it was kind of fun. You could see you know, kids in the neonatal intensive care unit one night, and the next night be in the OR with you know, older in- inebriated patients, mm. so it gave some variety. Then I came back to Stanford and did a fellowship in hematology oncology, that's basically cancer, within a sort of separate little fellowship on bone marrow transplant. Because bone marrow is a big passion of yours, yeah? Well, using stem cells therapeutically. So our bone marrow has adult stem cells, the blood-forming stem cells, which we use, we've used for 50 years as a form of stem cell therapy to treat mostly cancer patients, but we're starting to use hematopoietic or blood stem cell transplants for treating immune disorders and genetic disorders as well. And then at Singularity U, you have exponential medicine tied in there. Exponents, as in when things double, two, four, eight, 16, rather than going two, four, six, eight, ten. 10. Right. But what do we mean by exponential medicine? Well, I barely got through calculus to get into medical school. <laughs> You're the math guy, but <laughs> it's, it's easy to go, okay, exponential two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128. And then, but then, okay, 15 steps, you could probably do the math, mm. that's it. 32,000, but by the 30th step, you're at a billion, mm. which is, if that was a, a step, uh, one meter, it would be 26 times around the planet. That's mm. the power of exponentials, which we all experience day to day through Moore's Law, the power of computing is embodied by our smartphones. Mm. And then in terms of you know, Singularity University, which is co-founded by Ray Kurzweil, who has this sort of focus on looking at exponentials and their power, how do we have a mindset of where were these technologies with two or three more clicks of Moore's Law what will the power of our smartphone be, mm-hmm. or artificial intelligence, or 3D printing? Some things are just moving quickly. Maybe we overuse the word exponential. Mm-hmm. I like to say more rapidly developing technologies. And for my seat at, at Singularity University, where I chair the health and medicine side of things, we try and look at what are the implications of fast-moving technologies like AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, genomics. How do those come together, and how might we use those to rethink elements of health and medicine? I saw a wonderful TED Talk online that you gave a few years ago now, and you were talking about already the rapid 
evolution of these things. And it was, it was beautiful because you, you say in this talk, but I've got this phone here, I've got my iPhone 4, it's <laughs> incredible. And you say, imagine what an iPhone 8 right. will be able to do. And there's this sense of wonderment in your mind, which is understandable given where the 4 was from the 3 and mm -hmm. what they were saying the 5 might be able to do. So in that period, let's say the last three to five years, are things in that massive upswing phase yet or can we not say? What's changed that's blown your mind since that amazing world of a few years ago? Yeah, I think at the time I gave one of those TED Talks, it was like 2011, and so we have the iPhone 3 or 4. Actually, in my pocket right now, I found my antique iPhone 2, which Whoa. still boots up. Old school. And at the time, the iPhone 2 was like, wow, but now it feels slow. It has a low-resolution camera. It has small amount of, relatively small amount of memory. Still amazing device. But compared to my 10 or my X, iPhone X, seems antique. So what I think has exploded since then, you know, and the, the, the title they added to my TED Talk, though, is, you know, The Future of Medicine, there's an app for that, is some of the surprising ways people have sort of appified and digitized healthcare. And using the phone as, not a, as basically a smart computational platform with a whole variety of new sensors. For example... Yes, you can take a picture with your old iPhone or your new one of your rash and send that to a uh, Snapchat it now to a dermatologist and they might give you feedback. But since the iPhone 4 days, artificial intelligence is now to the point where it can live on your smartphone and look at that rash and tell you whether that's a melanoma or a mole. It doesn't need to be sent to a human to have a look at it, to look in books to compare. The app itself is making that decision. It's using this world of big data machine learning and now the ability to look at or have the experience of looking and been trained on thousands of images. What is a melanoma? What is a mole? Just like we can now look at cat and dog. Now we have this democratization where a kid today can download from GitHub some AI engine and their camera on their phone can identify that's a cat, a dog, that's a, that's a melanoma, that's a pimple. Um, but what's interesting now is that we're starting to connect the dots. So, you know, five, six years ago, yes, you could have some basic AI that could do some basic diagnostics. And what's starting to happen is that these are starting to become integrated into healthcare systems. Mm. It's, it's one thing to have the, the fun app as a toy on your phone. Now they're becoming, quote unquote, FDA approved. So in the United States, we have the Federal Drug Administration, FDA. They let you uh, prescribe only devices, apps, uh, drugs that are safe and effective. Now we're starting to see that standard come to these sort of apps. So if I'm going to build an AI app for dermatology and use it, it needs to reach a standard that it's not going to be making a whole realm of misdiagnoses. So that's a little bit what's happened. So it means that we can democratize some parts of care. Here in Australia, a lot of issues with skin cancer, given mm -hmm. your ozone layer, et cetera. You don't have enough dermatologists. It's probably a, a long wait to see them. Mm -hmm. Now probably every Australian using their smartphone uh, could do a, a whole body screen or track that little mole and make sure it's not changing. So that's a small example now that we're starting to incentivize the connecting the dots so your clinician may prescribe you the AI app or an app to help you manage your medications. Or I was going to mention some of the things that have been surprising. The microphone, the sound of our voice we're learning can be very diagnostic. Really? My, my voice will, ch there's actually an app you can try a company called Beyond Verbal out of Israel that made a kind of a fun platform that will measure your emotions. So my, you could be listening to me in real time. You can, your listeners can try this app called Moody's, M-O-O-D-I-E-S, and it'll, in real time, say if you're sounding passionate or happy or depressed. Now, imagine you've got a patient, a lot of issues with mental health mm. around the world. If your phone can start to give you a bit of, a, of a, a measure of how's your mental health doing based on just talking on the phone, or folks who are developing early Parkinson's or mm. Alzheimer's, there's subtle changes in the voice timbre that 
uh, machine learning has been able to pick up. The same Beyond Verbal company did a study with Mayo Clinic in the United States and looked at the change in voice with folks who are developing heart disease. So it may be not science fiction pretty soon that your smartphone says, hey, Daniel, we've noticed some changes in your voice. You might want to see a neurologist. Or it sounds like if you're a heart failure patient, you're moving to heart failure. Because imagine... Even if you have a pneumonia, hmm. have a funny cough, there's an uh, Australian company that's listening to the sound of your cough and can determine, is that just a standard cold or is that something more serious? So that's another example of these technologies that are getting cheap, democratized, and are getting better and better on a phone, not to mention the high-resolution camera and more memory and, 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 and the phone interface recognition. Okay, so let's assume, and you've put a strong, strong case for it, there are some amazing individual things that apps and devices can do. You talked about that second issue of then taking that data and putting it all together and making it part of my total health record. And that's a big step on from having the technology to do it, isn't it? Because my limited understanding of the health system is that there'll be pockets of, of excellence or someone will create a phenomenal best practice. But for that to then get taken up by the entire system. I mean, it's been obvious for a long time that washing your hands is really important. Mm-hmm. But you still hear about the hospitals where doctors are washing their hands at maybe 50% rate when we've had germ theory for a century. So how do we actually get governments and health providers, et cetera, to have a system where that's all coming together, all this deluge of data in some manageable way that, that helps me as a patient? You hit spot on. Often it's not the technology or knowing what you should do, like washing your hands. It's aligning the incentives and the behaviors. Behavior change is hard, whether you're trying to lose weight and exercise more and eat less or do more hand washing. Now we can hopefully use technology in smart ways, like folks have been using Microsoft Connects to track people around an operating room or a clinic and see how they're washing their hands, or your wearable, like your Fitbit, can tell when people are washing their hands, and using that as a way of seamlessly tracking folks. There's something called um, the Hawthorne effect. If you think you're being watched by Big Brother or the Mm -hmm. Hand Wash Police or the Hand Wash app, you might start to behave a bit bit better and do the Mm -hmm. hand washing, even if no one's ever watching the data. If your clinician is getting your weight scale and your blood pressure and information from your medicine bottle that you took your blood pressure medicines, uh, even if they never look at that and you think they might be, that will change behavior. So part Mm -hmm. of it is aligning the behavior elements and then the incentives. you know, even across Australia, you have different healthcare systems based on you know mm. things are practiced a bit differently um, in Melbourne than here, and mm. paid for a bit differently. In the United States, we have hundreds of fragmented systems. So often, it's getting the technology aligned with the reimbursement, how we pay for things, and the regulatory that are key, and understanding the tweaks of human behavior. One small example: we might have some great fancy AI and robotics to make a robotic anesthesiologist, the folks who put you to sleep doing your surgery. Mm. So. Johnson's and Johnson developed a device called the Cetesis machine that was basically an AI robotic anesthesiologist that could do basic conscious sedation if you're getting like a colonoscopy, mm-hmm. not full-on anesthesia, but it would monitor your vital signs, tweak the medications, watch your blood and heart rate, etc. It was great technology, probably better than anesthesiologists reading the newspaper. Who do you think was very opposed to it? Mm-hmm. The anesthesiologist, and basically the device has been killed and taken off the market. So there's this blend again about aligning incentives, how you pay for things, and behavioral economics, including all the way down to you know, a little wearable device on your wrist, that's not going to make you lose weight. We need to make the nudges work for you. That's mm. different than for Daniel or Sally or Bob. But the interesting, the, the flip side, at least, that with devices and measurement, at least you're getting accurate data. I saw a fascinating story the other day that when they surveyed a large number of people in Britain, the National Nutrition Survey, and they get people to estimate how much they're eating in terms of food sizes and calories and that sort of stuff and they they square that off with the obesity crisis and it doesn't make any sense why people are getting so fat 
given what they're all saying they're eating. So then they did an in-depth study of a couple of hundred people, a subset of that much larger group, and measured far more accurately with water you could drink that measured monia, how much people were actually eating. When you go back and look at what they're eating compared to what they say they're eating, people on average were eating 50% more calories than they declared. Not when they were trying to lie, when they were doing their best to estimate. When they looked deeper into the figures, 34% of Britons were regularly reporting a dietary intake that would not have been enough to stay alive. Mm -hmm. They're that far off the scale. So there is a flip side benefit, isn't there, to at least devices bringing about accurate Mm -hmm data for personal or mass analysis. It doesn't even need to be 100% accurate. Is the wearable device on my Apple Watch or Fitbit or Jawbone need to be exactly within 10 steps of accurate? No, it can give you a general measure. Or sleep, which is actually pretty important to our Mm. long-term health and happiness and risk of disease. Does it matter if you're getting exactly the right amount of you know, measurement of REM sleep? What's interesting now is because we're starting to connect these devices, we can see what is the average sleep for a 40-year-old man in, in Melbourne versus New York City. In New York City, you have a lot more noise. People go to bed later. You can look at that data. You can compare my sleep to others my age in my location and see are you kind of up to norm or to how much calories you're taking in. If you can start to track what's often called quantified self, you know, some of the data geeks, they can log their meals. Mm-hmm. That gives them more insight. They realize that, wow, one Big Mac and, and, and two orange juices and I'm over my 2,500 calories, which happens and you can gain a pound a month, which mm-hmm. would rapidly bring you to obesity uh, in many folks. So there's a balance between measurement insight, not always needing to be 100% accurate, and then how do you present that data to an individual so that helps them tweak their behavior not just for a couple of days, but over months and years. Just curious, how many Fitbit-type wearable fitness data retrieving devices are you wearing at the moment? At the moment, I've got like three on, but this is more for, I like to try these things that are new. One is a ring out of Finland called the Aura Ring, O-U-R-A. So that, sorry, that, that's that actually a ring. It looks like very a... Very fashionable little sort of black yeah, metallic ring. Almost looks fashionable, a little kludgy, oh. but it has basically a computer in it and gives me pretty nice a score and shows me my sleep and tracks my heart rate overnight and it'll even give me some coaching so for example if I'm jet lagged I don't think it's quite smart enough to know that I cross time zones but it might soon be a, a jet lag coach or it might notice that I went to bed super late last night maybe I was at a reception I had a couple glasses of wine my resting heart rate was much higher hmm. for the night and if I start watching that seeing my score I might go wow I need to maybe get to bed a little early next night or I should watch having you know a cup of coffee before bed as a, as a simple example because um, I, I know that some, some members of some of Australia's elite sporting teams Mm. are monitored all the time and if the captain of the national whatever sport has had two nights of bad sleep in a row the high performance monitor for the team is Mm. told that information because after two nights of bad sleep significantly more likely to pick up a cold or something if it's buzzing around the group so getting that sort of feedback to know where that person's immune system might be bouncing around given two or three nights of sleep data. Fascinating. Right. If they're the captain of the team, they have a big game coming up and they're, gonna, they're doing two bingers the night, two nights, maybe the team captain should know about this <laughs> and they're getting paid enough to make sense. There's a whole new science of, of sports optimization, uh, not just looking at your steps and your sleep, but maybe how you uh, throw the basketball mm-hmm. or um, football, or as you call them here, a soccer player has a knee injury and they've had a knee surgery. How's their gait when they're running? Is that changing? Are they at risk of, of hurting themselves again? Um, all the way to measuring hydration status for, for folks who are out on the field and maybe mm. optimizing their, their gameplay. But what, what gets super interesting here is like we don't know, even know what normal digital exhaust is from my ring, from my 
Apple Watch. What do you mean by digital exhaust? So, you know, we are now able to collect 24, I'm having a, the next third, generation three Apple Watch. You know, it's pretty much continuous heart rate monitoring can pack my heart rate. In fact, it now has a new app on it where if I'm sitting here talking to you and normally my resting heart rate's 65 and it's sitting there at 200, that might indicate I have a arrhythmia, a funny heart rhythm. It might alert me to that and eventually might even alert my clinician or cardiologist. We don't know uh, what average blood sugars are over the day or temperature. We know that 38.6 is the quote-unquote average temperature. Average person for the average time, average, right. average. But that's not average for everybody. And if we can start to pick up this digital exhaust from our steps, from our sleep, from our connected homes, from our behaviors, from our voices, we might start to learn what's a normal baseline for you versus me versus your uh, grandma. And then hopefully when you start to see things diverge, well, there's something going on. Maybe we need to intervene early. There's plenty of examples of older folks having falls. There's pretty good data that you might see small changes in their gait or their voice or um, how often they're making their coffee, which might be a norm for them twice a day, that indicate they're likely to have an event within a couple of weeks. And maybe you do something- True prevention. Early. Right. This idea of you know, where we are today with sick care, we wait mostly for disease to happen, the heart attack, the stroke, the cancer. With more proactive healthcare, using some of this digital exhaust and understanding what it means in relation to that individual especially, we can hopefully get more tuned to being proactive. Can you give me some examples, Daniel Kraft, of aspects of modern medicine, clinical practice now that machines or devices can do better than their human counterparts? Sure, we're a pretty common disease. Most folks are familiar with our diabetes. Let's mm -hmm. stick with type one diabetes. Often folks who are in the younger years end up with their immune system attacking their beta islet cells. They don't make insulin. They're on insulin for injections for life. And it's a terrible disease, all the downstream implications from affecting your eyes to your kidneys to your heart. So you have to be on top of tracking your blood sugar 24 seven, often with finger tricks, and then trying to adjust, usually with a little calculation or a, 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 your own head, how much insulin to take and when. Um, and that leads to lots of problems. Many people die every year because they haven't tracked their sugar, take too much insulin and their blood sugar goes too low or goes too high. Now we're seeing the ability to measure real-time your blood sugar with a small uh, real-time glucometer, continuous glucose monitor. And then the early stages of connecting that directly to a pump, which gives you insulin. Today, at least in the United States, the FDA has been very reluctant to approve that sort of thing because they think, oh, somewhere it's gonna go wrong. Um, and maybe that would happen occasionally, but in general, the algorithms that can drive understanding what your blood sugar is, what you've just had to eat, how much you're moving to predict how much insulin you take can make a huge difference. And there's a company actually started by two uh, parents whose children had type one diabetes who are always up and worrying and being their artificial pancreas in their brain. Mm. They've now used their knowledge. They started as gamers and quants on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. the, the algorithms to track and manage blood sugar and insulin are much simpler than trading algorithms. And I've now launched a company to try and build that artificial pancreas. So that's one example where we can use real-time data in a smarter way. Another realm where we're seeing the ability of technology to be better than a clinician, even well-trained ones, is feels like radiology, reading a chest x-ray, mm -hmm. MRI, a CT scan. Again, that's often based on years of training and pattern recognition. That little shadow means there's a, a lung nodule. But is that lung nodule a cancer or just something from an old TB infection from a long time ago? Hmm. Hard to know. What we're seeing now is the ability for artificial intelligence and machine learning to analyze those and do a better job mm. at diagnosing a pneumonia or understanding what kind of nodule that is. Now that's threatening to the radiologists. Um, and I like to say we're not gonna replace radiologists, pathologists, dermatologists. We're gonna start to augment them with this sort of technology 
And we need to because we have a lot of misdiagnoses. We have a lot of many parts of the world without radiologists or pathologists or dermatologists. Um, so we need to blend them together and, and get smarter faster. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Because you, you can look at any industry like that where there's the potential for you know, machine learning to encroach. And you can either go, well, that's it, I'm stuffed, I'm out of a job. Or you can think, well, if my normal 15 minutes with my patient, Daniel, 10 minutes of that is me looking at these scans, trying to work out what's going on, having an educated guess and then talking to Daniel about it, if a machine's done a massively better job than I'd be able to do and presents me with an accurate thing, I can spend 13 and a half of those 15 minutes having a human conversation with Daniel, maybe doing a bit of counselling, maybe doing a bit of et cetera, and improving the quality of that interaction. And if machines are doing all the heavy lifting, so I'm only sitting down with people in the situation Daniel's in who need a bit of, rather than 80% of my day being saying to people, oh, it seems like there's nothing to worry about mm -hmm. here. So that augmentation is, you don't necessarily have to look at this machine encroachment as that's it, we're all gone. There is the potential for human machine augmentation for the betterment of everyone. In a small example, actually a very significant challenge, there's a lot of issues with burnout in physicians and medics here in the US, Australia, NHS system. Part of that is because we're now sometimes overwhelmed by the quote unquote technology. Uh, the famous example is the EMR, the electronic medical record. You know, it used to be we would scribble notes on a piece of paper and I'd file it away and when you come in the next time I'll see you, I'll, I'll look that up. Um, now we have to often feed the EMR system. And now in the United States at least, physicians are spending often twice as much time typing their notes and that takes away from why many of us went into medicine. So we need to blend the technology in smart ways so that, yes, when you come to see me and I'm your doc, I'm not asking you what did you have for breakfast, how are your symptoms. Your smartphone and your synthesized information has already presented that to me. Or maybe I've called you in because I noticed, wow, your sleeping patterns are going off. Your heart rate at, at night now is 70. Something's going on, or, or 80. Something's going on. And when I bring you in, I already have your sort of digital fingerprint. And maybe I have your genomic information because we're in the exponential age of low-cost genomics. We talk about exponentials. It was millions of dollars to do a genome 15 years ago. Today, mm. we're essentially uh, almost 100 Australian dollars. Soon it'll be $50. That should be part of my medical record. And I can't look at you and analyze all those genes. I need to have those synthesized into my workflow so I can be smart, have that FaceTime, hand-holding, help you make decision elements. And again, hopefully tune your prevention, not waiting for you to show up with a heart attack or stroke. Two questions that arise from this sort of stuff that are playing devil's advocate to these amazing advances. If I've got a device monitoring or inside me and it's generating all this data, all this information, who owns the data that my body creates in the course of its natural operation? We'd want to say the consensus is you should own your data. Mm. You know, you should own the cells that come from your body. There's the famous case of the HeLa cells, Henrietta Lacks, and those cells mm. have become important in biomedical research. Uh, did the family ever get recompensated for that? But uh, there's a challenge now. Who owns your, your wearable data? If you have a pacemaker, there was a case, mm. a friend of mine who had a pacemaker, that the data from his device was not really owned by him. He couldn't get his own data. He was an engineer, a biomedical engineer. He couldn't <laughs> see his own data. So the, the, the big company that made the pacemaker felt that they owned it and they had rights to it. Uh, we're starting to see this whole movement of patients included, or uh, my friend ePatient Dave likes to say, give me my damn data. Uh, the idea that we should own our data and have the ability to opt in and share it. Because mm -hmm. many of us would like to quote unquote be data donors, just like we share data when we drive, which is personal data, our speed and location, uh, builds our Google Maps and our Waze Maps. Some of that same ability to share data can hopefully improve 
our maps and healthcare as well, if we align incentives and feel like we own our data. And on the other exponential, people are talking about blockchain and Bitcoin. Several new startups are trying to build platforms where you'll get paid for your data and your data will live on the blockchain and you can sort of get rewarded for being part of a clinical trial as opposed to just being a good Samaritan. Once we run these machines over us, we look at my genome, we measure certain different things. If I'm in that category of, look, you're going to lead a pretty healthy life, things are going to go great, you might want to ease off on the sugar a bit Mm -hmm. and hey, you know, a bit more of this and that's good for you and you should really think about long distance running you've got great lungs Mm -hmm. superb but if i'm a person whose long-term health outcomes aren't great and that's genetically just the way i am do we run the risk of creating a category of people who won't get health insurance because why would i insure someone like you who might struggle to buy a home because i just don't realistically think you're going to be here for 25 years paying it off etc how do we protect those who haven't won the genetic lottery Mm. Well, number one, genetics are not uh, all destiny. Where there's mm. the famous nurture, nurture. You can have quote unquote bad genes and still live a long, healthy life. But we do know people have genes that increase their risk for Alzheimer's or cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And uh, across a population of people with bad genes, sure. if you were setting a price for insurance, you would set it considerably higher than a population Absolutely. of people with good genes. So the pace and speed of genomics and beyond is sometimes outpacing ethics and regulatory. There's a 20-year-old movie, uh, Gattaca, Mm. which I would urge your listeners to go watch again. It's very insightful about the baby being born and sequenced right at birth, and it gives them a high risk of disease, and basically he's a genetic not-have, and he, he ends up being sort of ostracized in society. That is very close to being here now. We actually can sequence children in utero. They mm. don't do amniocentesis in most parts of the Western world. Now we take some blood from the mother and can basically sequence the child in utero. So you're gonna, or select even uh, in, in vitro fertilization. So there's a very slippery slope here. And now we're blending that with not just knowing what your base genetics are. Are you going to hire an employee with a high risk of dementia? Hmm. Maybe someone's running for U.S. president who has uh, genetics for dementia. You never know. Uh, There's this movie in the scene from Gattaca. They're on a date. The guy takes a little hair from the table and gets it analyzed. She's only a genetic six. So (laughs) not only are you going to... So the date's over, you know? And we kind of sometimes genetically do that anyway uh, undating websites based on looks that have something to do with genes but imagine, imagine putting that on your Tinder profile yeah, I'm a I, genetic 6 I'm, I'm an 11 my genes go to 11 but now we're at the ability to start playing with our genome we're in the era of CRISPR-Cas9 this mm. only 6 or 7 year old technology quickly for people who've heard of it but don't really understand what is CRISPR CRISPR-Cas9 is a system that is in many bacteria that enables them to splice and target uh, genes uh, and, and knock them in and out which have now been manipulated so we can take in human cells as well uh, target a gene and, and swap it. For example people might know sickle cell disease or other genes where there's one base pair that's wrong in your genetic code and causes a significant disease. Now we can theoretically take out bone marrow stem cells, swap out the bad gene for the good one and cure that patient. Or someone with HIV could get a transplant back of their own blood forming stem cells with a gene that protects them from HIV Mm. infection or optimize their intelligence if you do that at the stage of an embryo. Um, So that is not science fiction anymore. and it's a very powerful new technology we're going to be using in immunotherapy, potentially in fixing uh, genetic disorders after folks are grown or as children. Uh, and it will be a big game changer. Things like Huntington's Korea and mm. others that we're going to start to manipulate at the genetic level that are either today a death sentence. But there's lots of ethical and other issues. It's just moving very quickly. So let's assume these technological breakthroughs and medical potentials are there and are being realized. Let's assume we can get over the privacy issues, etc. The final thing, Daniel Craft, that I want you to convince me of is that these things are cost effective because the image a lot of people have in their mind of the next round of 
medical breakthroughs like personalised medicines and designer drugs. And we hear all the time about new breakthrough drugs, but they are so expensive, they're never allowed onto the subsidised public lists because you're talking about, yeah, we probably could save your mum for another three years. It'll cost half a million dollars a year for the medicine. Are the sort of things you're talking about actually reducing the total financial health burden or just forever ratcheting it up? In the right framework, there's some amazing new drugs that can cure hepatitis C. You know, you won't need a liver transplant. That could save money, but it's still a $100,000 drug in many parts of the world. Big picture is, yes, there's some amazing high-tech elements in nanotech and immunotherapies that are super expensive that may save lives significantly. But what if we spent, instead of the 80% of our healthcare dollar on 20% of the population when they already develop a chronic and advanced disease and shift that to more proactive elements to prevent the heart disease from happening, to predict who's going to get Alzheimer's and maybe treat them at stage zero to, for example, we can now tell big obesity epidemic here in Australia and beyond who's pre-diabetic based on how much they weigh, what their average hemoglobin A1C, which is their average blood sugar number. Now there's this idea of digiceuticals. I would prescribe a patient a social network, a connected scale, a wearable, and this helps them turn themselves around, lose weight, lower their average blood sugar, change their diet. So instead of costing $10,000 the next year from healthcare issues from type 2 diabetes, you spent $100 on the app. So that's an example of leveraging some smart new technologies to not allow disease to progress in the first place. So particularly if we align the incentives uh, for both the individual, the healthcare system, the hospitals, the challenge is the CEO of the hospital wants the beds full. They want sick patients in our hospital. Mm. The insurers want them empty. The individual patient and families want folks never to get sick in the first place. So it's a blend. Uh, I, I think we do have the opportunity, just like here in Australia, you've spent focus on you know, sunscreen and prevention of skin cancers. That can save a lot of money and heartache and death later by being proactive up front. It's an exciting time, a fascinating time. I, I would reach out and shake your hand, but I'm worried I might give you an unnatural temperature bump on the totally weird but awesome Fitbit body monitoring ring that you're wearing. Uh, open to handshakes, but I'll mention like one thing that's unappreciated is social, face-to-face. In our year of VR and AR and apps and FaceTime, you know, being with people, we know that folks who are socially isolated you know, we don't have access to friends and family or, or shut-ins. It's the same risk as two packs a day of smoking. So shaking wow. hands, giving hugs, all that human interaction, love and connection is super important uh, in health and medicine and sometimes underappreciated. Well, so we should uh, recognize that piece and hopefully connect those dots. Doing simple, low-cost, free things like mindfulness training and, and yoga and walking 30 minutes a day better than any fancy drug or other technology in preventing disease. So let's not forget sort of the old school, what your grandmother told you to do, you know, take a nice walk, uh, have a constitutional, you know, um, be with friends and family because that can lead to longer, healthier lives, you know, far beyond what a fancy app on your iPhone 20 is going to help you do. Well, it's been great getting social with you. Let's just hug it out, Daniel Kraft. Hug it out. And if anyone wants to look up for more, you can follow me on Twitter, Daniel underscore Kraft. And I run a conference called Exponential Medicine, exponentialmedicine.com, where we bring folks together to think about what is the future of health and medicine? How do we catalyze that? How do we bring that from multiple angles, from patient, physician, pharma, investor, to to help rethink and reimagine healthcare? Even when I hug, he keeps talking. I love it. (laughs) A little lower. Thanks. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. 
I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.